you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. This is the final episode of Imperfect Paradise. If you haven't listened to the first two, go back and do that now. Okay, here we go. For nearly eight years on and off, Curtis Gamble slept sitting up at the bus station in downtown Fullerton. That bench right there, that's why I used to say at number three, right there. Before that, Curtis drove a bus for 14 years until he got fired for being late, although he thinks he was really fired because of his work organizing drivers. Then Curtis drove a taxi until the police took his car away for driving with expired tags and a suspended license. And that's when Curtis lost his home. He began spending most of his days riding with his bus driver friends and then trying to catch a few hours sleep on a bench at the downtown Fullerton bus station. That's the same place where Kelly Thomas was killed by police in 2011. Now, we can walk around this way or we can walk around this way. I meet up with him there on a warm late summer evening in 2018. The sun is going down and Curtis squints at me from underneath an Angels baseball hat. Tufts of his salt and pepper hair peek out the sides. He points at a row of metal benches underneath an awning. Well, for the first few years, we would lay down on the bus bench and sleep as though it was a bed. But then as the years went by, the city of Fullerton changed their city code to not allow homeless people to sleep on the bus benches. They were given tickets. Then the city cracked down further. They put these little bars up so that you couldn't, you couldn't stretch out. So I learned how to sleep sitting up. Me and my, uh, Those little bars in the middle of benches, they're what's known as hostile architecture. The idea is to make the urban environment even more physically uncomfortable and inconvenient for unhoused people than it already is. In Seattle, the city put bike racks beneath freeway overpasses to leave less room for tents. In Portland, it's huge piles of boulders next to off-ramps. And in Fullerton and lots of other cities, it's armrests in the middle of benches to keep people from lying down. Hostile architecture is one of the strategies cities resort to when they decide unhoused people are occupying too much public space. It's a relatively easy, quick, and inexpensive solution. In other words, the opposite of building permanent supportive housing. Curtis lives in an apartment nearby. He had gotten the place in 2016 after he and another unhoused friend settled a lawsuit against the city of Fullerton. They had sued the city for refusing to allow a homeless shelter to be built on a vacant lot. Since then, Curtis had become a full-time activist on behalf of unhoused people. I saw him at nearly every public meeting where homelessness and housing were on the agenda, including the ones about David's plan. These are all low-income apartments, and that's what Pathway of Hope is trying to do, not build a shelter in your neighborhood. Curtis might have been the only one at those meetings who had real experience with being chronically homeless. Or at least he was the only one who talked about it openly. Which, if you think about it, is pretty striking. Here's this extremely controversial project that aims to benefit a very specific and needy group. And yet, this group is the least heard from and the least listened to. 
That's why I asked Curtis to meet me that night. I wanted him to introduce me to some of the unhoused people who could potentially live in the apartments David wanted to build. And I put something positive for all. After showing me his old sleeping bench, Curtis takes me to the makeshift memorial to Kelly Thomas, which he's helped maintain since Kelly's death. There are plastic flowers encircling a light post, plus a poster that Curtis made with a photo of a young Kelly wearing a white cowboy hat and a serious expression. It's taped to the back of a buses-only sign. So we always decorate this pole on behalf of Kelly and always with beautiful stuff here. One of the things Curtis does as an activist is distribute a one-page list he put together of places that offer free meals and shelter in and around Fullerton. He carries copies of the guide with him wherever he goes. Tonight, dinner is a few blocks away at First Christian Church. You guys want some dinner? You guys want some dinner? At the door, I meet a volunteer named Jackie Nolan. She greets people as they walk into the church cafeteria. Tonight is spaghetti. Um, the fourth Wednesday is usually taco soup. That's our Wednesday, but we switched. What is taco soup? Taco soup is like corn and beans and tomatoes and hamburger meat and taco seasoning. And Carol gets cucumbers out of her garden sometimes. A few dozen people shuffle through the serving line and then sit down to eat at round tables. Most people are heads down. They eat quickly and leave. But Eve Lucas stays to chat. She sits across from me, her long blonde hair in a neat braid. She's wearing shorts and a tank top. She looks athletic. Later, she tells me she plays softball every weekend at a nearby park. Eve says she was born and raised in Fullerton, and she's been living in her van for the past five years after she got evicted from an apartment. But I've just been, like, out here, and once you're out here, you're, like, becoming part of the atmosphere, and it's hard to get back on your feet again. It is. It's very, very hard. Are you from Fullerton? I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry, cause, but it's been, it's been awful. I don't even know what to do anymore. I'm, I don't know what to do because I'm, I'm, everything just overwhelms me. Just builds up and builds up, and then by the time I get this fixed, I lost my phone in the middle of my car breaking down. Um, now I have no phone to get in touch with anybody, you know, it's just stuff like that. I've just paid my bill for my phone because I want to take my little bit of money I got and pay for something important, you know, and I paid for my phone and then I lost it. And I finally got work and then my car broke. So I've been having to tow my car everywhere because I don't want them to take my car because that's my home. It sounds like drama. If that's all I talk about is stuff like that. This kind of backslide is something I'd heard David and others who work on homelessness talk about a lot. You lose your home, then you lose your car, and then for a lot of people, life keeps going downhill. I was told I don't look homeless, and I said, I try not to. You know, what does a homeless look like? And um, it's just, it's really hard, really, 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 really scary hard. I'll wake up in the middle of the night, just, it'll freak me out, freak me out. I want a home, and I'm a very clean person, and I'm very organized, and I love to work. I want to work. I need a place to do it from. It doesn't work out here. It doesn't. Eve is potentially someone that David's project could help. If she could just get a secure place to live and some support, she might be able to stabilize her life. Maybe she could even show up at a city council meeting to comment in support of housing. Later, Curtis gives me another reason why unhoused people don't tend to show up to public meetings to support projects like David's. They don't want to go to a room where they know they're going to hear things negative about themselves. Even if it's to make things better, they live in like on a day-to-day basis. 
and you know trying to make it through the night. Um, usually, when the regular people go home, like go home from a contentious late night meeting, they know it's a safe place. They're going to make it through the night, but for the homeless, it becomes the hardest part. The night, you know, to get that safety. So you don't need anything to upset you to make you more So unhoused people may not stand up to the people who don't want them in their neighborhood. But they do have lots of allies in Fullerton, like the people who serve free dinner every night of the week and leave food and clothing at Kelly Thomas's memorial. Was it possible that there was a silent majority of people in Fullerton who like David's idea? Could David convince them to speak up? And if so, would the council listen to them? I'm Jill Replogle, and this is the final episode of Imperfect Paradise, Home is Life. The story of one battle over where to house people living on the streets. And really, whether to house them at all. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Alias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events. During the summer of 2018, David was busy trying to rally support for his housing plan. He was having one-on-one conversations with neighbors. He was holding community meetings. So tonight we are going to get into questions, the questions that we have been collecting. And he was asking local pastors, priests, and rabbis for their help. I want you to be allies of ours, and this is a need we have. This is not just an ask. Convincing Fullerton's faith community to publicly support his project was a key part of David's plan. That's because churches and synagogues and mosques in Fullerton, and in lots of places, are the main safety net for people experiencing homelessness. They hand out bags of groceries and serve bowls of taco soup. They donate winter coats. They turn their worship halls into emergency shelters when it's cold and rainy. One church leader that David definitely has on his side is a man named Father Dennis Chris. He's the pastor of St. Philip Benizi, just a mile away from where David wants to build. When I meet up with Father Dennis at the parish office, he's wearing his usual warm-weather uniform, a black short-sleeve button-down shirt and black pants. His full white beard almost reaches the black frames of his glasses. When Father Dennis became the pastor here a few years back, there were already some people sleeping on church grounds. I would see occasionally a homeless person, and it didn't bother me because I just kind of knew the history, and I knew the guys who were here. They took their stuff and left each morning. Father Dennis didn't see any reason to kick them out. 
But then the number of people sleeping on the church campus began to grow. Some started leaving their shopping carts there during the day. This past spring, we had four people at different times living or sleeping on our grounds here who either made their first communion here at this church or graduated from our school. Neighbors and even some parishioners started pressuring Father Dennis to put an end to it. They thought the encampment was, at best, a health hazard and, at worst, a drug den. They filed complaints with the city. They sent letters to Father Dennis's superiors at the diocese. They trashed him on Nextdoor and on the neighborhood Facebook group. That's where one woman called Father Dennis's tolerance of people sleeping on the property a, quote, crazy agenda. Another wrote that she had called the church and asked them to remove her as a parishioner. It, it has been sort of an eye-opener of, you know, that we have an entire generation that, that doesn't seem to understand anymore that, uh, you know, that we are our brother's keeper. We are supposed to be good neighbors to each other. Um, you know, that seems to be lacking. Father Dennis tried to find an alternative for the people sleeping at the church. The Friday they say, okay, if we're going to send them away, I simply need to know where they're going to go. So we started to look at that, and it became increasingly clear to me anyway, and clear eventually to everybody else, that there is no place for them to go. The city of Fullerton told Father Dennis that he could only let 12 people sleep at the church at a time. They asked him to make a list of names and give it to the police so they'd know who not to bother. That meant that if you weren't on the list, if you showed up at the church perhaps newly homeless, thinking it would be a safe spot to spend the night, you could be turned away. So I made the list uh, about a week and a half ago. And look, I swear to God, I felt like Schindler. Father Dennis understood how deadly it is to be homeless. He is that priest who keeps track of all the unhoused people who die on the streets of Orange County each year. So when he heard about David's project, he thought, finally, a place for people to go. He was willing to do whatever he could to help David. He wrote letters to his parishioners asking for their support. He held prayer sessions. He spoke at city council meetings. I noticed, though, that at these meetings, most of the people who spoke in favor of David's project didn't seem to live in the immediate neighborhood, like Father Dennis. On the other hand, most of the people who spoke against it made a point of saying how long they had lived in the neighborhood. 12 years, 23 years, 65 years. I wondered if the supporters' voices would hold as much weight as the neighbors' voices. I also wondered, were there any neighbors who supported David's project? Scrolling through the posts on the local Facebook group, it didn't seem like it, or at least they weren't speaking up. But then one day I saw this post. I'm all for it, neighbors. We need to help these individuals get off of the streets. A supporter in the neighborhood. That's after a break. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. 
Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there. When I meet Jennifer Knoll, she and her husband had been living in the Kimmy's Coffee Cup neighborhood for a few years. They moved there from a different part of town. We just fell in love with this neighborhood when we were house hunting. It's just a really nice, down-to-earth family neighborhood. There's people out and about waving, saying hello. It's just a nice feeling. We talk at her dining table. Guitars, drums, and other instruments line the walls of her cozy home. Jennifer is a music therapist. She works with people with mental illness, some of them unhoused. Just like her neighbors who oppose David's project, Jennifer doesn't want people living on the streets of her community. But unlike most of her neighbors, she sees David's project as a potential solution. You know, the way I'm trying to express it to my neighbors is, um, you know, homeless is a problem is really a crisis in Orange County, and um, there need to be solutions. And I feel as though a lot of them are against it before they even know what it is. And it's a lot of not in my backyard, but there's homeless people already in our backyard. So to me, let's give them a place to live. But since Jennifer's Facebook post supporting David's project, she's been shunned by that same community that she felt so good moving into. Jennifer says one person accused her of being a paid supporter of Pathways of Hope. Another person called her a troll. A third accused her of not caring about the neighborhood or the children who live there. Eventually, she was booted out of the neighborhood Facebook group, supposedly for violating one of the group's rules. So Jennifer and a friend started an alternative Facebook group, the West Fullerton Neighbors. It only has 47 members compared to the original group, which has 860. Jennifer says the split makes her sad. Not long before her post, she'd been to a friendly neighborhood gathering at the park. Unfortunately now, I'm not so sure I'd be welcome at that type of gathering (laughs) because of my experience. And I know it's not the whole neighborhood. But the the experience was that negative. I wondered how many more people there were like Jennifer. Would they speak up? Or was the social cost of going against a group of outspoken neighbors just too high? By this point, it was late September. I was expecting the city to schedule a vote any day now on whether to move forward with David's housing plan. But I realized that I still really had no idea how the city council members felt. How would they measure whether David had enough support to move forward? I filed public records requests to try to find out what was happening behind the scenes. I reached out to city staff and council members for interviews. Only two of them said yes, the two council members who initially voted to move forward with David's project. One of them was Jennifer Fitzgerald. Jennifer, by the way, is no longer on city council. She recently moved to Texas. When we meet, she tells me she thinks the council jumped the gun when it sent David out to win over the neighbors. They hadn't even agreed on who would be eligible to live there. There were no blueprints. There was no safety plan to assuage people's fears. I think the council bears a great deal of responsibility for the confusion, the misinformation, and the animosity that currently exists 
in that neighborhood. When people from that neighborhood come up to council and talk about why they don't want this housing development, if it was going to be what they think it's going to be, I would never want it either and I would never vote to support it. In other words, Councilwoman Fitzgerald would never vote to give drug addicts a safe place to shoot up. But she says she believes in the idea of giving unhoused people a place to live with services to help them get back on their feet. My motivation really comes from the adage to love your neighbor as yourself. And the question has been asked, who is my neighbor? And I would say that Orange County's homeless are our neighbors. Why wouldn't I do anything that I can do to help those who need a helping hand? And, and I'm a conservative. And I believe that people should work hard and that we make choices and there are consequences to those choices. Uh, but we all have help in our lives. And I am so lucky that I have a great village a family and friends and a great support. And I am fully cognizant of the fact that there are people without that support. Now, what's the proper role for government to play? And that's the rub. Permanent supportive housing, to me, is a logical place to have local government be part of that solution. And so that's how I reconcile my conservative leanings and my compassionate Christian motivation to help our neighbors in need. So I ask her, would she be willing to have permanent supportive housing in her neighborhood? She says, yeah. And whenever the council does vote on the exclusive negotiating agreement with Pathways of Hope, she'll support it. But she's only one vote. I keep calling City Hall to find out when that vote will happen, but I can't get an answer. Then on October 5th, I get a call. My name's Ken Domer. I am the city manager for the city of Fullerton. I am not expecting what Ken tells me. Right now, the status with the Pathways of Hope request to enter into an exclusive negotiating agreement uh, is on hold or withdrawn um, from Pathways. David pulled the project. He withdrew his request to build permanent supportive housing on the city-owned lot. There would be no vote. What? Why, I ask? We've had at every city council meeting uh, a lot of opposition to the development at that site. There's a lot of misunderstanding and misperceptions on the issue of homeless uh, throughout Orange County and Southern California. So, you know, to pause, withdraw that project right now, kind of reconsider. Um, I think it's a good idea. I am so confused. I hang up and text David. A few hours later, we meet at a cafe. I expect him to look frustrated and defeated, but he really doesn't. So you decided to hold off on the project for now. Why? I think there's so many... There's such a confluence of different factors right now coming into um, to what's happening. So I think with you know, the political context in terms of the time of year that it is, um, you know, you got different people maneuvering for different sorts of positions and state, county, city levels and things. And elections. Then, yeah, you got elections going on. 
Which I hadn't even thought about how the upcoming elections might affect David's project. But when he told me, it made sense. Some of the city council members were worried about keeping their seats. And the mayor, Doug Chafee, was running for the Orange County Board of Supervisors, a powerful position. City staff told David he just didn't have the votes. David says he's going to let the dust settle. Maybe try again in a year or two. Yeah, so it, it's fine. It's fine. That's your, that's your, that, yeah. Like, so I ask you how you feel well, about it. Because here's, here's, here's the thing. We didn't get into this with, like, any kind of idea that this was going to be easy or that everything was just going to roll smooth and, like, you know, huh, look, two, two years later, a project's here, and it's great. We're moving people in. We'll, we'll be fine. I'll be fine. It's, but this isn't about us. This is about the people we're trying to help, and that, it's not fine for them. When they got the news, folks in the Neighborhood Facebook group congratulated each other for protecting their community. One person wrote, Big thanks to those who put in effort and personal time to rally up and save the neighborhood from this crap. That was in 2018, and a lot has happened since then. Despite the city's rule about allowing no more than 12 unhoused people to sleep at his church, the encampment at St. Philip Benizi grew and grew. Eventually, it moved out onto the sidewalk. And then police cleared it in December 2019. But Father Dennis says he made sure everyone there got shelter. Sherry Carter, the woman who said she'd boycott the tour if David was there, sold her home and moved out of Fullerton. One of the reasons why, she said, was because homelessness had gotten so bad there. Stephanie Bromley has continued to publicly oppose permanent supportive housing in her area. Stephanie declined to comment for this podcast. Jennifer Knoll continues to work as a music therapist. Her Facebook group, West Fullerton Neighbors, has been archived. Eve Lucas sold her van, and a local nonprofit found her a room in a house with three other formerly unhoused men. She hates it, actually. She wishes she had a place of her own. Curtis Gamble continues to attend city council meetings in Fullerton and elsewhere. Recently, the council was deciding whether to make it harder for people to park RVs for long periods of time on city streets. Curtis told them to stop, quote, bullying the homeless. The council voted to do it anyway. Kat Reese has stopped posting her interviews with unhoused people on YouTube. My producer and I weren't able to track her down to ask her why, but she enabled comments on one of her final videos, and to my surprise, people ripped her to shreds. One person who said they used to be homeless in Fullerton wrote, Bitch, you don't know shit until you lived it. David and Pathways of Hope have concentrated on making sure people have enough to eat during the pandemic. And in 2021, they helped distribute more than $10 million in rental assistance to make sure people didn't lose their homes and end up on the streets. I talked to David recently, and he said he learned a lot from the fiasco of his quest to build permanent supportive housing on that city lot in Fullerton. He learned to recognize when he's in danger of being used as a political shield— David said he felt played by the council members who weren't willing to stick their necks out and do the right thing, even if it was locally unpopular. He learned that a small, vocal group can majorly shift the political trade winds. He learned that fighting homelessness is a long game. Sadly, for people who live on the street and are dying every day, that seems like a really relaxed way to approach it. 
at the same time, it's really the only way you can approach it or else you'll drive yourself insane. This is the marathon of all marathons and it's not a sprint. David admitted that the whole saga with the Kimmy's Coffee Cup neighbors left him in despair for a while, which is very different from what he had told me more than three years ago when he pulled the project. Okay, so you were simultaneously in much despair, but at the time told me it was like no big deal. But I, I, so I, like, I take it that you were not totally honest with me at the time. No, I think, I think it took me a little bit to realize how it affected me. And so I think at the time, probably what I relate to you is relief, right? No one's threatening to follow me to the parking lot. No one's, you know, no one's recording my staff talking on the street to them about housing. He's referring to Kat's secret tape. Yeah, all those things, right? Like that stuff's not happening, right? So a sense of relief is the first thing you feel, right? It's like, oh, I don't have to deal with this shit anymore. Thank God. But you let some time go by and you, you drive by that site a couple more times and you realize what could have been there. And then you, you go to the monthly memorial at, over at the Catholic Church for the people who died that month. And you think, you know, could, are these lives we could have saved? It just reminded me of how far we have to go to get to a place where housing is seen as something everyone should have. Um, I think there are things you have to earn in this life, but I think it's odd that the two things that are probably the most important to ensuring you can live, housing and healthcare, are the things we're still asking people to compete over, to fight over, or to have to earn their way into. There is one more update to this story. Last October, Fullerton City Council entered into an exclusive negotiating agreement with a different developer to build affordable housing on that lot across from the Kimmy's Coffee Cup neighborhood. The neighbors made sure David and Pathways of Hope would not be part of the new plan because they didn't trust him. But that's okay with David. He told me he didn't care who built it or what kind of housing it was as long as it was for low-income people. Families, individuals, I don't give a shit, he said. We don't have enough housing, period. And in the marathon that is solving homelessness, it feels like progress. Hi, I'm Emily Guerin. I'm the senior producer of Imperfect Paradise. Thank you so much for listening to our first season, Home is Life. We have other great stories coming soon about the reality behind the California dream. So keep watching this feed for what comes next. And if you liked our first season, please rate our podcast and share your thoughts in the comments section. It really helps other listeners find our show and it helps us improve the work we do. Thank you. This season of Imperfect Paradise is written and reported by me, Jill Replogle. Emily Guerin is the senior producer, editor, and fact checker. Additional editing by Antonia Serejido, Sofia Polisa Carr, and Suzanne Levy. Antonia Serejido and Leo G are the executive producers for LAist Studios. Mixing and original music by E. Scott Kelly. Special thanks to Voice of OC for their reporting on this story. Also thanks to Donald Pass, Ethan Ward, Tony Marcano, Maura Waltz, Ross Brenneman, Hasmik Pagosian, and Megan Garvey. Our website is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at LAist Studios. They also created our branding. Thanks to the team at LAist Studios, including Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Moeller, Andy Orozco, Michael Cosentino, and Leo G. 
Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. Imperfect Paradise is a production of LAist Studios. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.